Hi, this is Yat. I'm a co-founder and chairman of Animoca Brands. And I'm here to tell you that the Edge of NFT podcast is one of the best places to get insights on the world of NFTs because of the awesome interviews that they do. Not just because I'm here, because a lot of the great founders that are being interviewed here are as well. Hey there, fine listener. This episode of Edge of NFT is a can't miss. Find out what the founder of Animoca Brands, Yatsu, is going to do with the $138 million his company just raised. And discover what discarded fashion item of his mother's did Yat try to sell in his neighborhood when he was just a lad. Last but not least, find out how you can be one of the first to earn one of 1,000 exclusive Edge of NFT Genesis Rev racing cars and compete for $150,000 in prizes by listening to this show and taking action. All this and more to come on this episode of Edge of NFT. And make sure to head over to edgeofnft.com to sign up for our newsletter and dive even deeper. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features guest Yat Su, founder and chairman of Animoca Brands, a global leader in blockchain, gamification, entertainment, and AI. It has been ranked in the 2021 Financial Times list of high-growth Asia-Pacific companies. Beyond his groundbreaking work with Animoca, Yat Su is an advocate for self-paced, self-directed education via his work with the Dalton Foundation. He also works to elevate the voice of underrepresented groups while promoting a healthier public dialogue via his work with Cortico. He has also received a number of impressive accolades, such as the World Economic Forum Global Leader of Tomorrow and Young Global Leader of Tomorrow. And we feel fortunate to even have him here with us today. So yeah, welcome to the program. We're looking forward to talk. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's 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 an honor, yeah. And by the way, congrats on closing a hundred thirty-eight million dollar round of funding. My niece wants to be a unicorn and would be very jealous. <laughs> Great. You've had such an amazing career that has spanned the spectrum of tech, gaming, entertainment, and blockchain. How did your experience lead to the formation of Animoca? Well, I mean, I think if you look at um... The sort of uh, the history, I think, and sometimes you don't, you know, it's always easy to connect the dots looking backwards and saying, oh, this is how, how it sort of all happened. I mean, Animoca itself, really the birth of Animoca before it became Animoca Brands really started after we sold our business, uh, which was uh, a cloud computing business being outplaced to IBM. And from that, we had a three-year non-compete on anything related to enterprise. And so I myself have a gaming route having actually started my earliest career actually with Atari in the 80s. 
Uh, so we had some lots of exposure to the gaming side and we already had some gaming assets and IBM was like, well, you know, we don't care about consumer, but we just can't have you do anything related to enterprise for three years. So I said, all right, fine. Well, I guess consumer it is, right? And uh, IBM was interesting also because from an M&A standpoint, it turns out that they don't actually like to bring founders into the business, right? So for them, it's more like buying the structure, buying the revenues, buying the organization, but actually really not wanting the founders because they consider founders quite disruptive and perhaps even messy because as one of the managers was saying, founders come in and, and tend to want to sort of change things. And you know, we like the way things are organized at IBM. We don't need people going and trying to tell us what to do because you know we kind of know what to do here. So it was actually quite compatible for us because I was able to basically come out and branch out to do something else. And just around that time, the smartphone was really sort of coming into being. And, you know, I had an iPhone already, but, you know, the App Store was just emerging. Uh, this was 2009, right? So we're like, well, you know, what can we do? Perhaps the first thing we can do is take a look at this device that I was using. And the birth of Animoca happened really because of my children. Because uh, at that point, I was a very, very young dad. And I was carrying around these really sort of big, um, I don't know if you remember or if you have children, but they were sort of baby Einstein had these um, big, big sort of flashcards. And they were way big, right? Because obviously, you know, you had, to, you had to put them right in front of the face of your kid and say, you know, car and you know, like orange and apple, you know. And there was a big sensation back in the day. And I used to carry stacks of these, right? I caught with my, with my like, you know, what would have been like a, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, whatever it was, right? And I was like, this is just terrible uh, because each stack was only 20 cards. And, you know, they go over 20 cards really fast. So I was telling my team, why don't we, um, you know, I had an iPhone. Why don't we uh, take these flashcards and put them onto um, the phone, right? And at least I could use it, but perhaps other people might like it as well. The general reaction I had from a lot of people was like, well, that's ridiculous because why would I want to put basically what was back then possibly uh, maybe a 1500 US dollar device or something expensive at the time into a toddler, right? I mean, they're going to chew it, bite it, do something crazy, crazy to it. And I said, well, it's okay. It's my phone. Let's just start it off, right? And so they, they put it together. It was really fast. They, like in a week or two, they made the app because after all, it was just images. There was no voice. It was super primitive. And that was the birth of what was known as baby flashcards. The very first sort of free flashcard, actually it was sort of free flashcard service um, uh, on the app store. And, you know, it was just, you know, I used it. I was, it was great. You know, I basically, I didn't have to carry out my stacks of cards. And then shortly thereafter, possibly a few months later, you know, the producer of the product came over to me and he said, hey, do you know what's going on with baby flashcards? I'm like, I don't know, because, you know, I didn't have access to the console. I was just using the product and the app store is new and says, we had like, 5 million downloads or something like that, right? I don't remember the figure, but it was just something insane, right? I was just like, wait, okay. So clearly a lot of people seem to think it was a good idea, but more importantly, the potential of the scale and growth of what the App Store represented became sort of very aware to us in 2009. So we basically decided, actually, you know what, this is something we should sort of really focus on. And at hearing that, I essentially shifted the, our entire operations to focus very much onto stuff related to, the, to, to apps. And uh, originally it was on children's apps and then went actually on to launch one of our first games on the App Store, which was called Pretty Petzalon. And in, 20, in January of 2011, the launch of that, 
was also one of the very first products to use in-app purchases. Because in-app purchases had just really sort of come about in late 2010, and the product just took off. And uh, you know, we, we became one of the largest mobile game companies in 2011, very prolific on the App Store. And so that was the beginning of Animoca itself. But there's another, so, but just to say, there's another backstory to this, because after we grew uh, that business and getting investment from Intel, IDG, and Excel, and becoming one of the biggest mobile game companies in 2011, in early 2012, the platform as an Apple removed us from the App Store and uh, completely deplatformed us. And to give you context on this is, at that point, you know, we had something like 10 or 12, 12 of the top 20 apps were ours. Right? And if you look at a little bit of the history, we had figured out that if we end up launching many, many apps, uh, as we did, we were super prolific launching like you know, an app a week and do, through cross-promotion, we would ensure that we were in the top rankings of the App Store. And if you recall back then, the App Store having fairly primitive algorithms of discovery, we ensured, therefore, that we always had some kind of uh, discovery and dominance. And that, I guess, irked some people at the App Store or perhaps our competitors. You know, we'll never truly know. Because, of course, instead of giving us a call, having a chat with us, saying, you know what, we don't quite like the business practices of yours or whatever, they just removed us as that company that was based in Hong Kong. You know, because at that time, the App Store didn't have a presence in China. They didn't have an App Store team. We were just nameless faces doing something someone in Cupertino didn't like at the time. And that was sort of not our first experience with deplatforming, but it was certainly one where we go, wait, what just happened there? I remember I was at the airport in Japan going to some meetings. You know, we had lots of conversations. People really wanted to work with us and boom, we're gone. And just like that, we went from star to pariah, where even the partners that were working with us, oh, you know, it seems like you're in the bad books of Apple. We're not sure we can talk to you anymore because it'd be kind of risky because, you know, if Apple sort of knows that we're talking to you, then it's like talking to the bad guys. You know, it was really, really uh, a, a hiring experience. At that point, we had 160 staff, but worse even, we had millions of customers using our products and all of them didn't know what the hell was going on, right? So anyway, I, I think this was just an, sort of the birth of Animoca was um, <laughs> dramatic to say the least, right? And that resulted in, ultimately, we came back in the App Store two years later. And of course, our leadership position was um, a change. And one of the big reasons we got back into the App Store was because Apple at that point had opened up a sort of uh, the App Store office in Hong Kong. And then they started reaching out to developers who had capabilities. And of course, China had become important as a market. So, you know, commercial, I guess, reasons why they started reaching out again. At that point, of course, we had, you know, we were like, oh, yeah, you know, Nice talking to you guys again, right? You know, just to be clear, we had never actually spoken to anyone at Apple. That's the point, right? It, they were sort of just terms of service type of organization uh, until, until they came to Hong Kong. And we have a great relationship with the team in Hong Kong today. And of course, that team had no history or background as to what happened in Cupertino. And again, we may never know. We certainly don't know exactly what happened. I also can't help but wonder what IBM was, was thinking after letting you guys go into gaming if, if they if they're wondering what some point along the way if, if they should have adjusted that non-compete and made it a little bit broader <laughs> yeah well i mean one of the things that we were definitely eyeing at the time is because the business that ibm bought was a messaging email business and at that point we were one of the largest um, enterprise email providers out there and perhaps one of the last ones that was actually truly independent 
I remember when we first started uh, Outplays, actually in the sort of uh, mid-2000s, something like 15 to 20% of of global email was sort of flowing through our spam servers because network solutions and Juno Online and Register.com and all of those, I guess, companies aren't really that big or don't exist anymore today. But back then, we're sort of giants in the internet space were using our service. So when we saw what was happening in the messaging space, we were actually thinking, for first thing was thinking, maybe you know we should be doing something in messaging, but we couldn't because of our non-compete. Because certainly capability-wise, we could have gone into mobile messaging very, very quickly because we had all the infrastructure to do that. But you know, I mean, you know, that, that space obviously went to the likes of sort of WhatsApp and Messenger and so on. And that's that's what it was. You know, we certainly had a good exit with IBM at the time. So we weren't complaining necessarily. Some very interesting things, you know, great story. I'm glad we got to hear that from you. I have another podcast uh, where we basically, the goal of the podcast is to help people think about starting businesses, which is affiliated with another podcast called the Indie Hackers Podcast, started by a Y Combinator graduate to kind of inspire, especially like programmers on starting their business. So I I think a lot of people would be inspired by the fact, hey, you can get started with a flashcard app. (laughs) Um, Of course, that was a while ago. But, you know, something as simple as that can get you started uh, to having a, a big company like you have today. The other piece of that that we often encounter is, um, you know, not to be dependent on a platform. As much as you can own the way that clients interact with you, the better because these platforms like Apple, Amazon, whatever you're tied to, they have such control and can do things like you said without even letting you know. So great story, great lessons learned. Appreciate you sharing that. Just another topic just to connect us with this podcast, The Edge of NFT. And that is, you know, when did you first hear about and encounter NFTs? And then you talked about kind of in-app purchases and things like that. But when did you start hearing about it? And then maybe when did you start integrating NFTs into what you're doing? So the introduction to non-fungible tokens really came because of our involvement with CryptoKitties. And the backstory to that was, at that point, um, you know, as a business, we were sort of about to acquire a company in Canada called Fuel Powered, which happened to share an office with another company called Axiom Zen, which um, was involved, both of them, to construct this little thing called CryptoKitties, almost like a science experiment. And of course, when we had acquired Fuel Powered, we didn't do it because of CryptoKitties, because at that point, CryptoKitties wasn't even patched. Um, But Mick, uh, who ultimately became a co-founder of Dapper Labs, and Roham, who had also been longtime friends from before, back to sort of college days. We acquired them because of the gaming studio that was, you know, building sort of uh, network and leader, leaderboard-based games. That was really the background of that. And when CryptoKitties took off, uh, Roham was like, hey, you know, maybe you come join as co-founder. We're like, wait, hold on a second. We had just acquired your business. You know, the expectation was that Mick was going to join us in a role in North America for head of games. And the compromise was, okay, like you go ahead and do, do and join the Dapper Labs. He remained involved with our business, but as a result, we became the publishers of CryptoKitties literally one month afterwards in January of 2018, and ultimately uh, an investor in Dapper Labs because when that took off, certainly for us, it was like very obvious as to what the potential of that could be. Of course, it was early days, but we said, wait, this could potentially really revolutionize what we thought at least the gaming industry needed. 
And, uh, you know, if you think of sort of our history, we, we tend to identify opportunities early, sometimes too early, and then we get excited about that. And then we go all in, right? And we see this in the early internet, we see this as mobile. And now with NFTs, we said, wait, I think this is that moment. So we went in, that was sort of our first interaction with NFTs. And then since then, you know, in 2018, you know, while the crypto market was collapsing in probably all, all possible areas, we sort of double and triple down into the space of NFTs, uh, which of course was challenging in another way because, you know, funding wasn't uh, obviously easy to get. And the narrative was also harder to explain because crypto had a negative sentiment and a negative narrative. On top of that, there's this thing called NFTs that most people haven't even heard of, right? I mean, I remember the conversations that people had back then. It's like, you know, the fact that you call it NFT means it'll never be mainstream, you know, <laughs> kind of kind of like it's a technical weird thing. And of course, today. They won't do a skit about it on Saturday Night Live, you mean? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Right. But that was 2018. Right. And so so that's kind of the beginning of that. But those are the things that actually we kind of enjoy because in a way we were almost a lone ranger. And certainly when it comes to the funding scene, we were kind of alone in the field and we weren't super well funded. But because we were a public company in Australia at the time, that's another story, right? We were listed. Our sort of participation and involvement was very welcome because we added incredible credibility at the time to a market desperate for credibility because of the fact that it was just so destroyed by sentiment. Um, and the other one, of course, is that we had resources in terms of making games and having sort of talent in that area, which was, was difficult as well. Because even in the blockchain space, as introducing the idea of NFT and gaming was also weird, right? They were like, no, why, why would I want to play games? Because they didn't play games, right? You know, uh, the crypto community, because of the token, the nature of the token, started really with financial guys in many ways, right? Or at least the biggest players were all finance guys. So it really took on the flavor of Wall Street. And, and you could argue that crypto today is still very much guided by people from Wall Street. People who were into sort of games and culture and the NFT guys were the micro, micro minority. I mean, we were probably in 2018 maybe 50,000 people that had NFTs in that space. I mean, it was just so small. And you look now at, at Axie Infinity, and I was just looking at their, their coin price the other day. And while the whole market has struggled the last few months, Axie Infinity is going up. And that's, a, that's just a really popular game. Yeah. And I think what's interesting now is that there was a point where everything correlated to Bitcoin even Ethereum correlated to Bitcoin. Everything was sort of correlated to the sort of the master coin, as it were, at, uh, for, for the longest of time. And now actually it's started to decouple, right? And to your point, right? You know, Ethereum is not, obviously it's doing much better than a year ago, but still it's down from its highs. But when it comes to gaming-related NFT projects, actually, in some cases there's recovery. In the case of Axie, it's sort of um, much higher than it was even one or two months ago. And, you know, Axie is another interesting example here because you know, we were the lead investor in 2019. And again, it was such a struggle to raise money for Axie. And it wasn't just a struggle because they didn't have lots of users at the time, although great potential. They were based out of Vietnam, right? And Vietnam was sort of a, a little bit of this sort of, um, you know, from our perspective, actually, a lot of interesting innovations that happened out of Vietnam, some great founders, of course. However, for most of the world, sort of a little bit of a backwater, right? It's like, oh, it's in Vietnam. It's not quite China. It doesn't have the potential. It's sort of, 
far, far away. I don't know anyone there. It was, it was treated like that on top of it and with sort of esoteric technology as well, with something like NFT and gaming. And it was hard to raise money. And they were also all first-time founders, relatively inexperienced and, and not given sort of, let's say, the time and respect at the time of what they're building because they were early users of CryptoKitties, saw the potential earlier than most, and basically felt that, you know, maybe they should sort of iterate on what CryptoKitties did and make it actually into a game and make it better, sort of introduce that with elements of collection, kind of like Pokemon style as well. And, and they built and built and built and built on that until they get to this moment, right? Axie Infinity took really three years to gestate to where it is today. It wasn't an overnight success just like that. There are many things that had to happen first before this moment. And I think uh, we're seeing this happening. And I think there will be more moments like this happening, particularly with gaming NFTs, especially this year. I think it's so interesting to reflect on how you've involved and supported the overall ecosystem and how all these projects have grown up to be their own versions of adults and self-expressing gaming culture. You look at how Facebook um, integrates companies that they acquire invested in. It's very different than your approach. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think, you know, and this is an evolution over time, but I think it's somewhat generational. And I think it's where we are today, which is when you think about historically, because of the concentration of the access and the power and the fact that business models in the past were designed around creating monopolies, right? And then you rely on governments to break it up and off the cycle continues. Although as of late, I guess the government hasn't been so good, not just in the US, but all over the world around dealing with antitrust issues when it comes to technology because they don't fully understand it, right? Uh, and I think recently, actually, China is starting to make moves in that area as well, where, you know, 10 cents merger of two of the largest video streaming platforms has basically been blocked by antitrust regulators within China. That is interesting, right? Because actually in the past, this type of stuff would not have been blocked, right? So I think people are cottoning on and catching up to the fact that these things ought to be regulated as well, you know, even though it's sort of technology as it were. But in the US, right, there was many talks about, you know, oh, it should be sort of antitrust on sort of you know, Microsoft or possibly Facebook. And, you know, obviously lots of talk, but at the end of the day, none of that is happening. And so, so you create these centralized power structures whose business model requires you to be monopolistic in practice because that's how you continue to grow and benefit, right? And I think this is what I think is changing and has to change as well for, for a couple of reasons I'll get into. But, but, you know, if you're thinking about building a decentralized future, right, then isn't it kind of hypocritical for us to then say, well, to build a decentralized future, we need to control everything, right? That, that doesn't seem to make sense to us. And I also think um, very, very strongly about the fact that because of startup culture, because of the way things have been evolving in the past with technology and, and the pace of change, that the best people and the smartest people are not going to work for you. They're going to work with you. And so that means that our entire working model approach, including, by the way, not even just um, working with people, but actually even within your family and your children or whatever, is to treat them more like peers and to work with them on an equal footing, which means that it doesn't make sense for us to aim to control everything, to consolidate, but rather to take an approach where we are investing alongside together with them, making sure that the incentives that they have as founders is strong enough that they will continue to do what they do as well. And really, it's respecting their effort, ultimately. And I think 
this is the part where we are currently different because that's the reason we've done at this point over 75 investments in the space. And just a few hours ago, or like um, maybe six, seven hours ago, we had announced our accelerator, which is very much similar to that thinking in terms of you know, how we can grow together with people rather than sort of consolidate them. That's sort of the vision we have in building a decentralized future, uh, you know, and then working with people around that. So dabble in screenwriting, man, and I'm working on a treatment for uh, the story of you and Anamoka, man. There's, there's so much cool stuff built in there. But I got to ask you, man, so true ownership, play to earn, two relatively, you know, novel concepts with tremendous potential. And also just blockchain and its capability to create new economic opportunities for financial inclusion. How do you envision the future of the ownership economy within the gaming space? So if you go back and sort of take sort of that sort of, um, sort of macro view first, and I think gaming is, of course, I think to us, the one that's sort of driving that and the tip of the spear in, in sort of digital property rights, is that first, I think we have to think about what is digital anyway, right? And what is it important for us to, and why is ownership so critical? Because we see the parallel very similar to how it was five, 600 years ago when, you know, most of the world was feudal and uh, sort of breaking that up right now. And, and, and I think we are seeing the same situation in the digital world because we are actually living in a world where it is not governed by a form of governance. Users or people in the digital world don't have currently, at least most of us, any kind of rights. And you ask yourself this question, as it is based on our own experience, what happens when you become deplatformed? What happens when you are not online anymore because Facebook, or WhatsApp, and Apple, or Google don't like you for whatever reason it is, right? Arbitrary as it may seem. Your human potential is significantly reduced. You don't have the same ability to make friends. You don't have the same ability to conduct business. And you certainly don't have the same economic potential. And thousands and thousands of companies and probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have their lives affected because of a terms of service decision, not one on governance. So you can't run a country that way, right? right? That would cause revolution. That would cause all sorts of issues. That's why we have a judiciary. That's why there's a democracy to ensure that these rights are one that we have. But when it comes to digital rights, actually, we don't have any rights. They're not human rights at all. They're platform rights. And we live on that. Basically, we live in a digital kingdom. It's digital feudalism. And we are all digital serfs. And for the small benefit that we get, which is the, you know, sort of, I can make friends online and I can connect with people. We are actually surrendering 95% of our value. And what is that value? It's our data, right? Data is the most precious thing in this sort of, you know, world that we have right now. But who harnesses the benefit of that data? Well, it's the platforms. And so that's something that we, however, as end users don't understand and don't appreciate because if we get a single block of data, it's actually not worth that much to us. We don't know what to do with it, right? I have all this knowledge, but hey, I can't do anything with it because we never had a way in which we could harvest the network effect ourselves until blockchain came about. And with, um, with the network effect going to the platforms, they basically realized that they get the benefit and they don't want to share that. So they created these walled gardens to make sure nobody else gets access to it. That business model is in every social network, is in every platform, is in every marketplace, and is in every game, right? So as a result, we have all these separate, separate little kingdoms not talking to each other with their separate little sort of data empires trying to attract us to go in 
giving us all sorts of candy so we can go in and, and sort of <laughs> use it, surrendering all our data rather willingly, sort of matrix style, but not actually appreciating what we're giving up. Because we always thought that our digital life was really just an add-on to a physical life. But as I had illustrated before, if you lose your digital life in a way, in the sense that you lose your platform, actually your human potential is, is less. And therefore, perhaps maybe in many cases, maybe worth more. And so how do we protect that? Enter non-fungible tokens in blockchain. Because blockchain is the one mechanism in which we can actually really own anything digital that is not controlled by a single party. Because who controls it? The end users, us as a community, right? Depending what system we're talking about, what consensus, that's a different topic. But basically, no single platform can operate in order. And we've seen the, an example of where the network effect becomes so powerful within a community of a service that even the largest of companies are forced to use it. And that example is open source, right? It's probably the one and only sort of service uh, of Web 1 and Web 2 that sort of emerged uh, to sort of demonstrate open source as a potential. Where if I'm using something that is not from, if it's in open source, I can sort of really sort of avail myself to the network knowledge of the coders that have contributed, millions of coders that have contributed, which is also the reason why a five-person startup can compete with Google on a product and service because now they have access to all of that. But the network sort of network uh, talent that sits inside open source is so large that Google can't, with all their resources, or IBM can't, with all their resources, compete with that. So everyone is now contributing to open source and we all benefit. But that's not true for content. And we think, just to finish on this one, we just think that non-fungible tokens is going to be uh, with open digital, like an open digital asset and it's going to deliver to digital assets what open source did to code. Yeah, that's incredible. And I mean, you talked about in various ways, competing with Google, Facebook, and we've talked about it sort of on principle. We've talked about it as sort of digital citizens or even non-digital citizens. And I think those are very interesting framings. It makes me think about, you know, all of the sort of data surrender that has been encouraged over the past decade or two by these type of companies. And I was always intrigued by the fact that the founders and the leaders of those companies weren't just kind of throwing their data out there. Right? And, you know, not to say that they should have to necessarily, but there's interesting contrast between those things. So one asset that you have right now is the uh, funding round that uh, we've already mentioned in order to kind of compete with this type of strategy. Um, so I'd like to just kind of check in on that. How, how is this funding going to reshape your mission of creating a sustainable player-owned economies with NFTs? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, the funding will help us sort of supercharge, obviously, a lot of things in terms of building out the ecosystem. One of the things that we have done in the past is with the acquisition side, we have brought in um, sort of content, in this case, games, that basically, as we, we see it, right, games are basically sort of, you know, it's still digital feudalism. And these game platforms don't provide a good service to the end users, we think, because ultimately game, the game business model has become exploitative, again, by necessity. Because to make money, I have to keep selling content. To keep selling content, I have to devalue what else is in there. Otherwise, there's no incentive for you to buy more content, right? It's a traditional kind of loop that's out there. So 
the economic sort of setup is is closer to that of say Venezuela <laughs> or possibly even North Korea, and and so that's not a place that uh, you know many people would would like to live in. Now, when it comes to funding, I think there's two parts to this, right? The biggest and most important thing we think that we have to help develop and grow is the community and the assets that we grow is sort of contain that network effect of the community, right? So if I'm buying an NFT, well, what I'm actually buying isn't just um, like a beautiful object, perhaps with like that looks good. I'm buying access into the network effect and network power of the whole community that owns these assets. That means that what we, when with the capital we're doing, was, is we're investing in creating these type of assets that have powerful network effects, or at least designing around them. And we think games is one of those that have very powerful sort of intrinsic network effects because it's social, people play together, use these assets and so on. And we've seen this happen with things like Axie Infinity, you know, and obviously with Sandbox that's developing, or even with F1 Delta Time, people are sort of valuing and using these assets partially because of, you know, the, the utility, but also because of the future potential or who else is using it, right? So we, we see that. So that's how we're going to be using our funding basically to sort of drive that. The business was already doing quite well before and didn't actually need the funding per se. But one of the reasons we also brought in the funding was to bring in essentially the partners that we have, right? I mean, if you think about sort of, uh, you know, bringing in money isn't just about capital to deploy. Bringing in money is making, bringing in new shareholders, bringing in new stakeholders who then have a vested interest in your success, right? So by introducing sort of groups like, like Blue Pool or Gobi Ventures or Samsung or Razor, right? I mean, these are companies that are more than just money. These are companies that have access to millions and millions of potential new users into the space. You know, working with a company like Razor is not a surprise because of the fact that they have access and reach to all the gamers that buy their hardware. Working with someone like Scopely is also not something sort of that's untactical here because they are one of the biggest game companies in the world and they have lots of users playing games. So bringing that in as well. But where we want to deploy the capital is you know, we want to basically sort of build these sort of network assets. And that comes in the form of IP, right? It's one of the reasons why everyone's out there trying to acquire big IP and the prices have risen ever since, right? I mean, you know, we were fortunate that we had acquired a lot of IP in 2018, 2019, when NFT was like, what's that? Not sure what that is, but sounds cool. You take our IP. So it was obviously a lot more economic to acquire that IP back then. But today, everything is much, much more expensive. So we need more capital. That's, that's, uh, and I think you see that in, in other deals as well. But the other one is from the M&A side, is that as we sort of, where we have sort of created a little bit of a, a sort of niche for ourselves, is that we're out there basically bringing in game studios into this universe of blockchain gaming and essentially reforming and reforging their economies from what was inflationary in nature to basically one that has true, a true economic infrastructure uh, with blockchain. And that is uh, something that we, we know how to do very well at the moment. And so everyone is, um, that, that's kind of how we're doing that as well. And, and, sort of, and then, of course, continue to invest in the space, right? You know, making lots of investments, helping grow the ecosystem. You know, we really want to be helping to sort of grow this. And we're in a position where we can help shape the thinking around that space, which is rare, right? I think it's not many times where you can be in a situation where you can help sort of direct people towards how we think this new decentralized world should be. And that's also why we just recently announced our accelerator, where we're bringing in the, the youngest of founders to having great ideas and building it out. And I think we are possibly the very first NFT accelerator in the world. 
Well, since you mentioned the accelerator, tell us a little bit more about that. You're partnering with Brink and it's called the Launchpad Luna, correct? That's right. Launchpad Luna is very much a nod to the whole crypto community, just in terms of the thinking around sort of where that is in a maybe slightly less obvious, but still very obvious way. Right? It's also one of my favorite projects. It's a, it's a cool one. <laughs> All stars. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I think the thing here, why do we partner with Brink? So we actually were already an investor in Brink. And Brink is kind of the uh, Y Combinator of Asia. They have launched many, many successful uh, batches originally in the hardware space, but then ultimately sort of moved into like food tech services and all that kind of stuff. And they know how to run accelerators. They know the program inside out. You know, they're experts in that. They've raised tons of money within, uh, within the companies that are out there. So, you know, we don't run accelerators, right? You know, we have a vision. We know what to do there. But if we suddenly had to build the capability of, of running an accelerator, that would be difficult. So, so that's why we partnered with it. But the funding is, is basically us, right? We, we funded it. We supported it. And what's also interesting there is the funding goes up to half a million dollars. But at start, you know, for those who sort of come through the court, at least 250,000 US, which is significant. It's not a small check of money um, for founders in that space. And, you know, what's also incredible with Launchpad Luna is, you know, the outpouring of support that we have managed to get from all of the mentors and advisors and supporters who said, you know, hey, we'd love to support this. We want to help grow the ecosystem. And, and that, this includes not only companies we invested in, right? So we you know, outside of our own sandbox or the, the, you know, the folks at Axie Infinity, you know, we have people like the Metapurse, Metacoven, right? We've got, you know, Gabby from Yield Code Games. We've got the, the team uh, from Zed Run, right? We've got um, sort of all, all these incredible sort of individuals and, and groups that are sort of supporting it. And then you also have platforms. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And I think it's sort of very reflective of the NFT community, which is a willingness to share because they understand the power of, of what that could deliver. And it reminds me also back in the earliest days of the internet, when we were sort of starting up back, you know, 25 years ago, that that was very much the ethos as well. Sort of people just sharing very openly about sort of how things should be and how to grow that space before it sort of became more centralized. And so that's kind of what we want to encourage. We want to encourage that and continue to grow that. So we're really stoked to see it happen. And, you know, we just announced it. So we'll see what cohorts come in. I just started our application, guys. So uh, so we're good to go. Uh, it's amazing. Like, yeah, look, you, you've had an amazing couple of years. I mean, several years, but really the last couple in terms of partnerships has, has really been impressive. So you have Formula E for WWE Undefeated, you have Dapper Labs relationship, Axie Infinity, and, and so much more. You have this public alpha for Rev Racing, the arcade simulation car racing blockchain game with $150,000 in prizes built on Polygon launches August 11th. And to our listeners, by the way, you really have to hang around for details that we'll cover just a little bit later about a killer launch contest we're helping Animoca to run. But for now, yeah, tell us more about Rev Racing. What is it all about? So Rev Racing was born out of the idea that we wanted to have more freedom in terms of what we could develop with brands in terms of the cars, the racing context that out there. Because, you know, our very first uh, game was F1 Delta Time. And F1 Delta Time is a, I guess, as far as NFT lore goes, a fairly famous, I would say, because of Metacoven's initial purchase of the 111, which in 2019 became the most expensive NFT. And in 2020, as the sale of our Monaco track was the most expensive NFT 
as well. And of course, these were very modest sums in comparison to what we've seen in 2021. But back then, it made headlines. And I remember, you know, because uh, Medikovin never disclosed his ownership up until very, very recently, a lot of people were like, nobody's ever going to spend that kind of money on NFT. This has to be an inside job. Blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And, and, and what's also interesting is that the controversy of that obviously actually fueled more conversation on it, right? So I think that helped sort of really usher in sort of more discussion around sort of NFTs. But because we worked with F1, it was uh, obviously helping introduce sort of brand power, but also there were restrictions when you work with IPs because in the case of F1, they have different kind of games that are out there. So the way the game has to be played has to be distinct from another game. And so there are restrictions around that. So by introducing something like Rev Racing, we have freedom to do the kind of games we really want to do, you know, which is a, you know, either front-facing, skill-based in a certain way, all these things that we couldn't do. And you know, we have hired and brought on board people like Matt Solomon, who are professional Formula 3 sort of racers and drivers, to really help recreate a racing experience that feels like that of a racer, right? And that's all part of sort of the freedom we wanted to sort of implement with Rev Racing and, and create sort of this incredible racing experience from the top down with the kind of funding that we have to sort of make a, a really awesome game. Uh, the other thing is you'll note that we have also started partnerships with drivers themselves and sort of working with them. And this is not just on an advisory and NFT side. You know, we're hoping also to design specific cars that they can model as well, where they can say, well, this is the kind of dream car I would have wanted to have and sort of work with them. That's amazing. Ethan and I actually know a race car driver, so we're going to have to talk to him about this after the show. Emma Jane McKinnon Lee also designed race cars, I think, in college of uh, Digital Axe. I don't know if you know her yet, but she's an amazing uh, leader in the space. So there's, there's something brewing here, crew. Yeah, definitely even had a very specific conversation with that race car driver. What can I do with NFTs? <laughs> yes, exactly. So perfect. Well, we have a couple of the segments we want to get to, but we, I'm really, we're probably all really fascinated with the, the next question I want to ask, which we tend to love to ask people. You know, we saw how you were prescient, you know, back in 2018 with the various investments and partnerships you made. And, you know, we could delve deeply into why <laughs> that happened for you, but clearly very intelligent here, especially about the space. And the question is, you know, we like to think long-term on this podcast, three years, five years, 10 years, you know, 100 years, I guess, if you want sometimes. But what do you see the NFT space, projects, platforms, either existing or yet to be formed that are kind of standing out to you that will be game changers in the more distant future? So I think I view the space right now is a little bit like internet 2000, 2001, right? Meaning that early in the stage of our development. And you have to take that in the context of numbers, right? How many people actually have a DeFi wallet? Well, you know, you know, in the context of it, maybe still less than 100 million today, right? How many people have NFTs? Uh, well, actually, it's maybe barely over a million at the moment, right? And so we're so, so early in this stage. That it's, it's, um, it's difficult to sort of pinpoint to say, well, you know, here's this or this specific winner, right? Because that's a little bit like saying, who's going to be winning the search wars per se? That's the first part. The second part is, I don't think and I don't want that there should be a future where there is a zero-sum approach, meaning that there is one winner, a winner, winner takes all, which again, is sort of because of the way the business model was designed and because and the inherent weakness, I guess, of Web 1 and Web 2. 
it necessitated ultimately a kind of consolidation of that because we as people were unable to sort of manage our own data. So we gave it to someone else to manage for us because they would be able to obtain the network effect from that and then give us a small part of that benefit, not telling us, of course, that they kept most of it for themselves. Blockchain can change this, meaning that the network effect is one that we participate each and every time that we sort of uh, have an involvement with this, whether it's through NFTs or tokens or, or whatnot. And so in that infrastructure, I am actually hoping for a birth of where there will be you know, thousands and thousands of companies out there. You know, and Axie Infinity is certainly leading the pack when it comes to blockchain gaming, but you know, won't be the only one that's out there. But at the same time, I also don't think that even if Axie Infinity doesn't end up becoming sort of the, one of the biggest ones out there, they will always be there because of the fact they have a community and they have a loyal audience and they have people who love the product and for what it stands for, right? You know, and we've seen examples of this, and particularly from the gaming world. The gaming world also doesn't have a sort of singular, singular giant, right? There are hundreds of unicorn companies on public markets and private in the world of gaming, right? And I remember this because um, back in 2011, when we were one of the mobile game leaders, we had obtained funding from the likes of Intel, Excel, and IDG. And um, we had an opportunity to invest in many of the emerging mobile game companies and mobile platforms in 2011, because we were in a leadership position and we could do so. And at the time, uh, similar to where Animoca Brands is, people were like, oh, we want to work with you because you, know, you seem to know what you're doing. But at the time, our investors were like, no, we didn't give you money so that you could invest in what might be competitors, right? Don't enable them, you know, kill them. That was kind of the mantra because it was very much zero-sum thinking. Of course, that was a mistake. And uh, many of them you know, ended up becoming very successful and for which we could have participated. But perhaps even more importantly, we lost um, intelligence. We lost the opportunity to share ideas. We lost the opportunity to connect closer with them. And also, as we have seen, it wasn't just one game company ruling the world, right? It was many of them and they continue to emerge in that space. So I think the metaverse will develop in exactly the same way. And I think what I love about this is that you know, it really does celebrate diversity because we now have a way in which we can exist in a place that speaks more to ourselves rather than being in an environment that necessitates you to be like how the platform deemed you to be because there's only one or two, right? In a way, being on Facebook or being on Instagram is a definition of an expression that is forced upon you, right? You can participate in it in a very passive way, but then you don't get the same benefit. And so most of the people that are on Instagram that succeed are the ones who are frankly more extrovert in nature, perhaps, or more sort of louder or more whatever it is that they're doing, because that is how that platform is designed, right? With blockchain economies, you'll have different forms of consensus. It's not just consensus in terms of the chain. It's also consensus in terms of how the game is run. And maybe I like a game that's a bit more centralized, or maybe I like the game that's completely decentralized, whatever that may be, you can choose to exist there in these platforms as you like. So I think the future will be decentralized, not just in terms of the ownership, but decentralized in the form where sort of, you know, platforms, content, marketplaces will be overwhelmed place. And I actually think this will be better because we now have a fairer take of that network effect. Like with artists, right? You can take 10% of all the secondary sales. Well, that means the artist now has the freedom to do other things with that and create and innovate in different ways. So I'm, I'm actually thinking there will be hundreds of sort of niche marketplaces out there that can thrive because we've moved from 
rental economics to ownership economics. And I think that's another big point. Well, that's good to hear because we're young and we want to be around a long time having conversations with folks like you about this exciting sort of place that just sort of where innovation happens within days and weeks as opposed to years. Yeah, I also find it very interesting the way that you're envisioning the future of, of sort of many players. And it reminds me of the process of, of speciation within biology, right? Biodiversity is, we're learning is key, you know, to the health of the planet. It also makes me think of, you know, I studied neuroscience and it makes me think of the different ways that the brain has been viewed over the years. And it almost always coincides with sort of the economic technology of the day. You know, when you had the industrial age, the brain was a machine. When you had the computer age, the brain was a computer. When you have the network age, the brain is a network. And I even see now the brain is probably going to be more and more viewed as an ecosystem in the next stage, right? Just like we're talking about economic ecosystems and all the players having their important roles and respecting them. And within the brain, we're even talking about the heart brain, the, the gut brain, you know, the head brain and how they're all need to be integrated. So I really love the direction that you're going with, the, with how you're thinking about the future. Appreciate all the answers to these questions. Wonderful, thoughtful answers. We're really appreciating having you on the show. And that's why we have our next segment that uh, we want to get to know you a little bit better. And I'll let Jeff introduce that. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, so exciting to have you here. Edge Quick Hitters. All right, they're a fun, quick way to get to know you a little better. 10 questions. We're looking for short, single or few word answers, but feel free to expand if you get the urge. Ready to dive in? Sure. Let's get started. Okay, question number one. What is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? Um, probably some candy as a kid. The first memory that comes to mind is my mom gave me sort of a little bit of like money. It was, I was grew up in Austria, so it was like some shillings. It was tiny. And, and I go buy your own candy. I was like, okay, fine. I go in, super excited, go to the store. And I pick something from the candy bar. That was sort of uh, my first memory of, of purchasing something. Very nice. Number two, what is the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? My mom's shoes. So um, it, was a, it was a funny situation where I was, um, this is also in Austria, and my mom would like, throw out things like they all do, right? Sort of spring cleaning. And there were these sort of a pair of, in particular, I remember this particularly well, a pair of golden shoes. My, my mom was an opera singer first and then uh, became opera director. So, you know, dramatic wear was obviously something that was part of her nature. And uh, she had some, uh, some fantastic costumes. And, and outfits. And there was these shoes that were, you know, golden and they were shimmering and it was just like incredible. They may as well be flying shoes, right? And I was like, you can't throw this away. This thing's valuable, right? And of course I was a kid, right? And she's like, well, you know, I, I don't need this anymore and whatever. Uh, so I said, well, you know, maybe I should go try and sell it because I actually thought that I could make some money. And so I went around and, uh, and sort of to the neighborhood, literally, old school style on a bicycle, basically sort of broadcasting golden shoes for sale. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I don't know, maybe I was seven or eight. I don't remember the age, but it was sort of uh, my, my first big sort of experience. And sort of most people thinking that, sort of, what's this crazy Asian kid in the middle of this neighborhood, basically? <laughs> sort did, of, did you sell yeah, the shoes? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I mean, obviously it was peanuts, right? But it was just glad to be able to sort of find some crazy buyer who I don't know what they thought. I think it was probably just a charity buyer. It was like, this kid just shut him up, right? 
just 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 I'll buy your shoes so you shut up. So you didn't negotiate ten percent royalties for life on future. No, I purchases. wasn't that sophisticated yet. No, I just <laughs> I just wanted to sell it. But that was that was the, my first thing I remember. Yeah, still hustling and identifying opportunity at an early age, though. That's a, <laughs> yeah, awesome. Number three, what is the most recent thing you purchased? Well, uh, I have to say it uh, not to toot our own horn, but it just just because of the timing. But it was um, uh, Olympic NFTs because uh, sort of subsidiary Enway had just launched these NFTs, had done a sale for them, and so I had purchased them. And in fact, this Friday we're doing a sale for the Tokyo Olympic NFTs, which you know is an interesting one, just because the Tokyo Olympics has many stories, both positive and negative, attached to it. But and they're the official licensor, so we bought. Uh, I bought some NFTs. I haven't bought much in the physical world, to be frank, as of late. So everything has been very virtual. <laughs> yeah. Number four, what's the most recent thing you sold? So that's interesting because um, I actually haven't sold. I can't think of anything I've really sold because I think I'm just generally a hodler. Even with virtual assets, I buy and then I just store them and keep them. So and then because I'm buying mostly virtual assets, whether this is, you know, like whether it's even like, you know, like a like Bored Apes as well. I bought a bunch and, you know, the me bits and because I had some crypto punks and everything, I haven't sold anything, right? And of course, our own assets, I, ju I just haven't sold anything. So this question is harder for me to answer because I don't know. I don't know actually what I sold as of late. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't come obvious to me. Number five, one question off today. What is your most prized possession? Um... You know, it's difficult, right? Because I think prized possessions is one of those things that alter over time. But if you had to ask me this question today, I would say it is our family home. And why is it prized? Because it contains, my kids are, my oldest kid is 16, and then um, there's, um, uh, my daughter's 13, and then 11-year-old, we have three kids. And we really grew up in this house, right? And so the memories attached to it, everything around that, that is what makes it sort of prized in, in our view. And especially in the context of the fact that one kid's almost ready to go to college, another one's about to go to boarding school, right? So there's a little bit more of that as well that comes into play. So right now, I would say it is our family home for all these reasons. All those memories and experiences. Beautiful. Very special. Number six, if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service and experience that's currently for sale, what would that be? So... I don't have a particular attachment to physical things in terms of, you know, I, I need to buy a car or something like this. I mean, just as a little context, I don't even know how to drive. And so I don't have a relationship with cars in that way. I do love the appearances and look of them, but I don't have that, right? Which is why I have team members that sort of help me on that side of things. So, but in the digital side, you know, I mean, right now, if I could buy, and again, you know, I think the narrative is so incredible. If I could get some bigger plots of land on Sandbox for myself, that would be quite amazing because I really see where that's going. And that's kind of what I feel passionate about. So stuff on the virtual side, you know, come pitch to me. I'm very likely to be, to be a buyer at this point. That's awesome. So switching gears a little bit, if you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would that be? I think my optimism, I guess, and positivity is sort of, I think, something that's helped me sort of fuel through frankly, some pretty dark days. And I, think, and I think this comes from maybe a background of obviously how I grew up. And also, I think the fact that ultimately, I actually have always a very divergent approach. And I guess it wasn't designed this way, but it just was a circumstance of the time 
I was forced to be different in my approach, divergent in my approach, which led me ultimately to find multiple pathways when there was a problem, right? So a problem had many solutions around it as opposed to, you know, there's a problem and that's a dead end, right? So I think that is, I think, a trait that um, we don't have enough of because of the way that we're educating our children, because of the way that we're told the, wor- the world was working. And, you know, we talk about sort of people who have solutions, right? But obviously, I think, I think the path of people having solutions is sort of this um, being divergent in their approach, but you need to be optimistic, right? If you're not optimistic, it doesn't matter how divergent approach you are, you won't be able to see the positive pathway and then you won't do it anyway. But I've seen so many people paralyzed by being pessimistic. They just won't do it. They just won't, just won't even try. Even if it's zero cost to do it or very little risk to do it, they just won't do it because they just see all the dangers and not the positive um, uh, sort of the, the benefits. And so I think that probably would be maybe one of the traits that uh, the, the traits I, I would want to pass on. Such a key insight. Yeah. Question eight, if you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would that be? I guess it's a little bit related to the first one because they all come in counterbalances, which is that as a result of being very optimistic, I have a very difficult time saying no because every time someone was, would present something to me, I see all the possibilities, right? I see all the, all, all the ways in which it could be, even if it's not there, because I guess that's just my nature. And so the positive side helps develop the opportunity, but maybe sometimes I infer too deeply into what could happen. I would say sort of sometimes to be optimized in your performance because we have limits, we have capacity, we, we are scarce in our own way. We have to be able to say no at times too, right? And I've gotten better over time to do that. I suppose wisdom does that a little bit, but I would say that is not my, that is certainly not my superpower. Right? <laughs> I, I, I can, I can totally relate. And I oftentimes I, I use Jeff as a uh, litmus test for some of my ideas. Right. Well, no, we're glad you said yes to joining us today. This has been a ton of fun. Um, yeah. If you say yes to lots of things, I also have a golden pair of shoes to sell you. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm pegging the, ask the, the starting bid at like maybe $1 million. We'll see if how <laughs> that goes. <laughs> Moving on. Question nine, a little easier. What did you do just before joining us today for the podcast? Well, I was actually sleeping. It's 5 a.m. in Hong Kong. So uh, I, I, just, I just literally got up before the podcast. So, yeah. But you clean up well, sir. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Question 10. What are you going to do next after the podcast? So since it's early in the morning, typically what I do, I go out for a walk or run with my dog and my wife. Um, it's it's uh, 6 a.m. now. So probably in about half an hour, an hour, we're out there. I typically like to start the day with uh, a form of exercise you know, out, out in nature. Hong Kong's great that way, even though the weather hasn't been fantastic. You know, most people don't realize Hong Kong is like something like 70 or 80% green, right? So we live right next to a sort of uh, uh, mountains and then sort of great scenery. So, and I think that powers the day, right? Like sort of when you start this way, at least for us. So this is a daily routine. Great way to start the day. I went from knowing, you know, Central Park in New York City to visiting Hong Kong and, and going through some of the, the sort of mountain green hikes they have there. That's kind of their version of Central Park. Was surprised to see like hogs and, and monkeys, you know, uh, running around it's, in that it's, park. It's animals everywhere. Yeah. It's a jungle. Yeah, it's a jungle, literally. <laughs> 
Amazing way to start the day and a great way to finish our edge quick hitters. Thanks so much uh, for those 10 questions. We really appreciate it. You want to hit a couple of hot topics? Sure. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about what's in the news here. So first item up to talk about is coming to us from the crypto briefing here. It says uh, Polygon launches NFT gaming studio. So the studio will focus on growing the global blockchain gaming and NFT industry. This is an interesting development of of Polygon. Uh, Any thoughts on this from uh, Jeff, Josh, uh, Yat? Well, I feel Yat has the inside scoop here already. Just a hunch. (laughs) Well, first of all, we are, you know, we're really working closely with Polygon, right? And if you go to the Polygon Studios website, you'll see that Andy Walker Brands is mentioned as a partner. So we're really sort of involved with that. You know, we're, we're launching, as I said, the Rev Racing game is launching on, on Polygon. And we have a couple other things that are happening in that. So we've been great supporters and they've been very supportive of what we're doing as well. So, you know, we think it's, it's a great solution, particularly if you're Ethereum-based. You know, it's necessary as well, right? to bring more resources into the space, because we do believe, we all believe that uh, gaming is going to sort of really bring more people into blockchain. And so I think Polygon recognizes that as well, and sort of building out specific tools and to sort of help onboard that. And we ourselves obviously are, are doing that as well. Together with Polygon, I guess where we are a little different is that we are very much cross-chain. So we work with Flow and we work with Polygon and work with Binance and work with everyone because we think that the future ought to be cross-chain. And you know, I think it's not incompatible at all with what Polygon is doing here, because after all, they are essentially a layer solution for Ethereum. Absolutely. And I think with Polygon, we get these reduced gas fees, which are so important for transaction-based economies like gaming, where you want people to play and not have buyer's remorse about um, making these micro decisions with their games because of gas fees. Right. Yeah, it's a whole different story when I buy something online and the tax is like five or ten percent of my purchase, and uh, <laughs> and and a whole other game when I buy something in crypto and the tax is three times the actual purchase price of what I wanted to buy, <laughs> or ten <laughs> times, or one time. Oh <laughs> man, that that Gary V uh, NFT we bought, Jeff. I still have nightmares about the gas on that one. Yeah. I think the cost of gas is an interesting one, right? Because the tax, of course, there's a point where the transaction fee may not make sense economically. But I do like the system of gas and, uh, and costs uh, because of the fact that it ensures that there is, at least in our view, a sort of a way in which the network is kept healthy, right? And maybe it's too expensive, then it becomes maybe a little bit like Switzerland, right? And, and maybe only certain kind of transactions make sense in that environment like, you know, big banking services or whatever that may be, right? But I think, um, I think the fact that there is a cost to me is, is, is good because it ensures that the network is, is kept healthy and is paid for and people are rewarded for the activity. I think that is, that is an important aspect of, of feature of blockchain, I think. Yeah, I mean, the idea of taxes and fees, you know, I think we all, I can get on board with if my taxes are going to something that benefits me and my family and my community. It's where we get frustrated when these type of add-on fees goes to a central authority and we have no idea what they're doing with them. And so that's kind of, um, you know, the spirit of what's going on with blockchain when these things happen. It's going to a decentralized set of individuals or that help control what's happening next. That's a great segue, Ethan, to the next article we found about governance and NFTs. 
Yeah, world's first NFT resort will revolutionize the timesharing market. So Labs Group, the first end-to-end -end crowdfunding service in the blockchain and real estate industry, will launch the world's first community-powered and owned resort, Kenning Kenning Glamping Resort. Resort would solve the pain points of the traditional timeshare market. And uh, it's interesting that it's glamping. Uh, I feel like uh, all of these revolutionary new things remind me a little bit of uh, Burning Man. <laughs> I, I guess it's an existential question for me is, are there problems in the timeshare market or is the timeshare market a problem? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Well, well, I mean, I think, you know, one thing that blockchain is going to infiltrate, much like the internet has, every part of every business, right? So it doesn't really matter to me almost what that business is. It will be, you know, on Web3, right? Because of the fact that the, the nature of it will offer a distribution of its benefits in a way that is no longer centralized. So I think it applies to everything we do. But of course, there are flavors one has to consider here because when it comes to things like timeshare without knowing the full details, which I don't, right? Is that actually an element that starts to draw closer into possibly a security if it gives you an ownership in that, right? You know, because when it's a derivative of something, especially if it's a fractionalized derivative, then it certainly becomes a security. And I think this is something that the industry at large, because it's a little bit Wild West as well, everyone's just innovating and creating, and that's great on one hand. On the other hand, though, you know, the people who are building it don't have all of those experiences. And they don't maybe even understand that what they're doing is something that becomes a security and therefore it gets into a riskier territory because they don't even know what that is, right? You know, so there's a, there's a counterbalance between rapid, super fast innovation, sort of, you know, break all barriers. And then of course, there are existing rules uh, out there designed to protect and one has to pay attention to that. So, so this is probably the one space where, you know, we employ lots of lawyers and so on to help us think through all of the projects we get involved in. And that is uh, something that is very untypical, right? Uh, because in the past, you know, you just innovate and you just do. But now, actually, you do need to have review, especially when you're issuing a token or even with NFTs, you know, because just because you're an issue an NFT doesn't mean that it couldn't be a security. Yeah. And I think we all just hope it, it's a fresh and new space uh, where a lot is going on and people are experimenting. And it's great to be able to have those resources of lawyers. And, and in the end, let's uh, try to support those people who are really trying to do good in the space and let them experiment and hope the regulators, you know, can help foster that as well. Absolutely. That can probably going to conclude our hot topics for today. Um, really, of course, you especially have had some great opinions on that stuff. So we appreciate it. We should probably check in with you, you know, just quickly about where people can go to find out more about what you'd like them to. And then we'll have Jeff uh, wrap us up. Great. Well, I mean, I think uh, if you want to learn more about what we do, right, obviously, you know, you probably can go visit projects like The Sandbox or revmotorsport.com. That's basically some of the things we're talking about today. General information on medical brands, you can go to our website. You can also follow our Twitter. I'm reasonably active myself on Twitter, discussing things and uh, sharing stuff under my handle, which is YSIU. So, but, you know, I think if you just search Animoca, I think you'll find a whole bunch of stuff on us as of late. So uh, definitely sort of, you know, we're also post on Medium uh, and have thoughts and opinions on this one. So yeah, do, do look us up and, and, and check us out. 
Yeah. And there's really uh, no better way to keep up with what you guys are doing than to be part of the action and um, be part of uh, the rev racing sort of landscape and, and get your own uh, rev racing car. So um, excited to share a little bit more about that with our listeners and uh, give them a chance to participate in this uh, Genesis event. So Animoca is going to generously give us uh, access to some level one rev racing car NFTs, which can be used to play the new blockchain game rev racing and earn um, from a $150,000 prize pool. Did I get that right? $150,000? That's You got that right. Tell us a little bit more uh, about what's going on here with this uh, Genesis event that we're uh, very fortunate to be part of. Yeah. So as I had mentioned earlier, I mean, rev racing is basically the genesis of a new racing game that we want to sort of uh, actually sitting on Polygon that we wanted to sort of bring more to the masses, right? One of the challenges we also had with F1 was, you know, the value of these assets had just sort of because of the income potential had just sort of <laughs> skyrocketed. So it's become harder for people to be onboarded as well, because in order to actually start playing on F1 Delta time, you need to spend thousands of dollars, right? And that's, you know, not the most obvious way to get on board, but it generates a, a strong yield. You know, just, uh, I think just recently, there was an article on one of our players who had bought a house in Queensland, Australia for his family of three and based on his winnings of racing in F1 Delta time. So, so that's already sort of a beginning as it were, right? With Rev Racing, we are trying to sort of be more inclusive community-wise. And so we are generating these cars through these staking, earning, if you had rev and sort of participation events to sort of really build out a community that can sort of benefit from all this play to earn growth that we're seeing. And because it's level one cars, everyone in this case is skill-based. So everyone's kind of on the level playing field and they can compete for that early prize pool as a start. But of course, as time goes on, we have custom cars, we have more levels that you can use your existing level one cars to upgrade to level two cars. Right, so there's a pathway to basically start with these assets and grow that. And uh, you know, I would encourage everyone to participate as much as they can in this because, you know, as we continue to invest and grow in the rev ecosystem, you know, the way to enter it is through level one assets, right? And these level one assets is what we're very sort of, I guess, generously giving out because we want to build the community. But there will be a point, of course, where that stops, right? And then the upgrade paths begins. And I think that's kind of where the scarcity will ultimately come in. So we, as we have done with previous models, you know, rewarding the early adopters is um, how we're sort of looking to grow the space. Super excited about it. I'll give a, I'll give a little, uh, you know, kind of recap, you know, for all of our listeners here as well with uh, some of those details you just noted. So listeners, are you ready for it? Rev Racing and Edge of NFT is giving away 1,000 level one Rev Racing car NFTs. Enjoy the drive and the opportunity to win a total of $150,000 in prizes. Yes, $150,000. Players will compete in a seven-day competitive racing event starting on August 11th. Now's the time to get yourself a sleek racing car by going to tinyurl.com slash revcars. That's R-E-V-V-C-A-R-S and follow the steps to enter. The first 1,000 participants will be part of the Edge of NFT racing family along with us. You better get there quick though, because this promotion is on a first come, first serve basis. And the cars will be leaving the lot faster than you can say rev racing. We'll be right there in the mix trying to win cars of our own as well, so move quickly. Okay, 
we've reached the outer limits at the edge of NFT for today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on the starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey also much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us, say something cool, and then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Want to help co-create Edge of NFT with us? Got guests you want to see on the episode? Questions for the host or guests? An NFT you'd like us to review? Drop us a line at contact at edgeofnft.com or tweet at us at edgeofnft to get in the mix. Lastly, be sure to tune in next week for more great NFT content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today.